If you would get your Bibles out this morning. And why do I say get out your Bibles this morning? Because we are Bible Chapel. There we go. Let me pray before I get started here. Lord Jesus, we come before you, worshiping you, remembering when you invaded your creation. I can't help but think of the phrase that you you did not wait for us to come to you, but you clothed yourself in frail humanity. You came to us. You saved us. Indeed, thank you, Lord. There is nothing more that really needs to be said in that regard. And we want this time, we want to start this week off right by focusing on you. And we want the preaching of the word of God to be about you. So prepare hearts, speak through me to touch and to change lives to, as I always pray, build up your church that your kingdom may come, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. So magnify this teaching gift you've given me for the sake of your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking the title for today's sermon is, in light of last week's sermon about listening to God, is there are two responses to Christmas, as I mentioned, and that's really the title of the sermon. And so I want to begin, though, with asking you, what is your favorite Christmas movie? Because they're all over the, the TV now. And I, I thought, okay, let me give you some of my favorite Christmas movies. This, my kids know this. The first one would be this one, Disney's A Christmas Carol. A lot of Christmas carols are, are done. I remember taking my kids to see this, and it's just the message behind A Christmas Carol. Okay, does anyone else have that as their favorite? And if you don't, it's okay. It just means you're abnormal. Okay? But... Disney's A Christmas Carol, or A Christmas Carol in general. It's a great message, right? Live your life in light of eternity. That's what, what in essence, Christmas is about. How about this one, National Lampoon's A Christmas Vacation? You guys are looking away laughing because you're like, yeah, I do like that one. I don't want to be identified with that movie that I actually watched that movie, but I remember watching it in the movie theater in Athens, Ohio with my friend, uh, Pat Blankenship, my sophomore year. And I haven't laughed that hard since then. It's the reason why it keeps coming back. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Of course, who's the main actor in that movie? Chevy Chase. See, you know it, see? And you're watching it. So, how about this one? Remember the Santa Claus, Tim Allen, and so on? Of course, it was 1993. What was his main distinction? Actually, really unique to him. 92 or 93, maybe it was 93. This was the number one movie in America. He had the number one sitcom, Home Improvement, and his book had come out, and it was the number one book, all at the same time. Yeah. Tim Allen in The Santa Claus. And I heard music as I was out here this morning. I thought, yes, why did I put this movie on here? Instead, I put, I like this one, Fred Claus. Have you ever seen this one? I think it's kind of funny, but why did I put Home Alone, right? That's a pretty good movie. I kind of like that one. And of course, I also like this one, the Polar Express. So you raise your hand for the Polar Express, but not for a Christmas vacation. Joe, you like Christmas vacation? I, yeah, okay. There's at least two normal people here. So, 
I remember taking the kids. You remember taking the kids to the movie theater to watch the Polar Express? So you guys like the Polar Express. Let me test your, your knowledge then. Who's seen the Polar Express? Okay. What year did it come out? 2003? Wrong. Anybody else want to be pointed out and be wrong? 2001, wrong. 2009, November 2004. It was released in theaters. Now, if you know this, then you're good for the rest of the time I'm here. I won't pick on you or anything. You know how much it grossed? This is pretty amazing back in 2004, by the way. $311.3 million worldwide. 2004 numbers. Okay. It was later listed in the 2006 Guinness World Records. Did you know this? as the first all-digital capture film. It was cutting technology. Oh my goodness, that was 16 years ago. I am getting old. Wow. Of course, the film tells the story of a young boy who is beginning to doubt who? Santa, the existence of Santa Claus, right? And on Christmas Eve, he sees this mysterious train bound for the North Pole stop outside his window, and of course, as any normal kid would do, I'll get on a stranger with a stranger in a train going to North Pole, right? <laughs> Invited by the conductor. And by the way, there's only a few people who played the parts. Who was the main actor in this? Tom Hanks. Yes, very good. He, what, he joins, the boy joins several other children as they embark on a journey to visit Santa Claus, preparing for Christmas. Of course, in a train ride, there's numerous adventures, but they discuss whether or not, of course, they believe in the existence of Santa Claus. They arrive at the North Pole, Santa and his reindeer, and they make their first appearance, Santa and his reindeer, and they come to give the first gift of Christmas. Remember that scene? And while celebrating their arrival, what happens? A bell flies loose from the galloping reindeer's reins. Everyone is hearing it, but who? The little boy. He can't hear it until he finds it with himself to what? Believe. He says, I believe, I believe, I believe. Santa hears this, and he shows the bell to Santa, which selects him to receive the first gift of Christmas. Of course, like any other young child, what immediately happens to the bell? He loses it, right? It's a good picture of humanity right there. We lose it, so... And of course, where does he uh, rediscover the bell? Home on Christmas morning, he finds a gift, and there is the bell. Now, he can hear it, and his youngest sister can hear it, but the parents can't hear the bell. And so he reflects on his friend and sister eventually growing deaf to the bell over the years as their belief faded. However, despite his now old age, the bell still rings for him. As it does, as it says, for all who truly believe. That is the message, in essence, of the Polar Express, which obviously fits right into what we'll be talking about this morning. There are two responses to the spoken word of God. Luke makes it very clear as he gives us two stories of how we can respond to God's spoken word. And one of the lessons of the movie, and it's one of the lessons really that I'll be talking about this morning, that if you believe, you will hear. If you believe, you will hear. 
Now last week I gave you this definition of Christmas. Christmas is God speaking miraculously. It's significant because the last recorded miracle was about what? 500 years earlier. The last time God spoke was about 400 years earlier through the prophet Malachi. But when you read the opening chapter of Luke, what do you find? I need to see if you're paying attention last week is what I'm asking. So, an explosion of miracles, angelic visits, supernatural messages, angels visiting, okay, all of this. God's speaking miraculously, and he's speaking very loudly. He was no longer silent. So silence was no longer the problem. What was the problem for the people of Israel? They weren't listening. Because they couldn't, weren't listening, because they wouldn't believe, they couldn't hear. And that's really us in many ways, isn't it? When God speaks, there are two responses from his people. Either you believe or you don't believe. And Luke presents us with these two responses to God in the Christmas narrative. And he's looking at them. Let's look at them this morning. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 21. We'll start off with a very, unfortunately, common response, which is unbelief. God speaks, I just don't believe you. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. It's interesting, because the scriptures talk about, and this is not in a sermon, it just came to me, you know, it's not always the woman's fault, by the way. You ever know that? A man can be sterile, but yet the scriptures paint a picture of that she was barren. And perhaps it was Abraham who was sterile, and God did the work in him. That was why Elizabeth was barren. Either way, she's identified as the one who was barren, and they both were advanced in years. Now, I got a, a couple of thoughts I want to share with you to set the context here. I think you'll find this pretty interesting. Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests at that time in the Jewish religion, and that is important to know. Because some versions or translations of the Bible will say a certain priest. The point is, is that he's just one of 18,000 priests. There's nothing special about Zechariah. He's a common, garden variety, ordinary priest. Now, the nation of Israel was also a theocratic kingdom, meaning it was ruled by God through his priests. And all the priests were sons, uh, were descendants of Aaron, i.e., Moses and Aaron. They came from the line of Aaron. And what they would do is they would take care of the public issues and events and the teaching of Scripture in their local villages where they were priests. But they would come to the temple in Jerusalem and serve in the temple two different weeks a year. And because there were so many priests, 18,000, um, they would only serve one week at a time of the year and another week at another time of the year. But all the priests came during the, to the temple for Passover. And so it wasn't uncommon for the 18,000 priests to slaughter as many as a quarter of a million lambs in a week's period, because that's what you did at Passover. 
In essence, they became butchers. That's really what a priest was in many ways, a butcher, amongst other things. So you can imagine the amount of blood that was flowed and with the population that came to Jerusalem that were Jews and the required animals for sacrifices, from the morning till the evening, from dusk till dawn, they were just butchering these animals. But in the normal cause of things, they served in the temple just two different weeks a year. The rest of the time they served in their villages, but we find Zechariah at this particular time serving in the temple. It's safe to say that Zechariah's life, when you look at what we know about him from Scripture, was filled with religion in the service of God. And he had a wife who was what? What does it say? A daughter of a priest, okay? A daughter of Aaron. And there's only a couple things that are uh, unique about this couple. First, it says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What does that mean? It's not that you can earn God's favor by living a, a, a righteous life, but that's that they faithfully followed the commandments of the Lord. And they were declared righteous before God because of their belief in the coming Messiah, as we'll find out. In other words, they were just like Moses or David in the Old Testament. They believed in the coming Messiah to save them. It was their faith that saved them. They were declared righteous before God. Because of that, they were able to be empowered by God, in a sense, to walk blamelessly in all the commands of the Lord written in the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. If you remember last year, I talked about the, the religious climate at the time there was a time of Jewish defection from true worship of God to a time of hypocrisy. Remember that? Pharisees were called hypocrites. There was a time of faithlessness, a time of self-righteousness. Yet this couple in that environment is what? They're pretty devout. They walk blamelessly before the Lord. But the second thing that is sort of unique to them is that they were barren. And the most severe shame that a Jewish woman would ever bear at that time in history was to be childless. The rabbis used to say, seven people are excommunicated from God. You're, you're basically out of the church. Here's how they begin. A Jew who has no wife or a Jew whose wife has no child. That's what the people were taught. So the tendency of the people would be to think this way about a woman who cannot have children. That the scriptures teach that children are a blessing from the Lord, Psalm 127. The scriptures also teach that if you sin, God will curse you by shutting your womb, Deuteronomy 28. Therefore, what's wrong with Elizabeth? This couple also is advanced in years. I mean, they're probably between the ages of 60 to 80. There was no retirement benefit, no retirement age for these priests. They served till they died. So they were probably between the ages of 60 to 80, probably closer to 80. But all their life, think about this, from the time of their marriage, when they were teens, between 13 and 15, they were probably married. Now they're roughly 70 to 80 years old. They bore the stigma of no child in that culture. I mean, you would meet people and they would ask, inevitably, how many children do you have? And if you say you didn't have any children, then they would think you're cursed. They would have endured years of questions such as, what's wrong? 
or what sin is in your life to bring this curse from God? Of course, they're all wrong because they're about to find out that their barrenness was not divine punishment, but what? It was divine planning. Verse 8, now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Again, context will help here. The third thing that is unique about Zechariah, this very common priest, while it was common for him to serve as a priest before God at the temple, it was very uncommon very, very uncommon to be selected by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was perhaps the greatest moment of his ministry, one of the great moments of his life. And the custom of the priestly office was this. Every day at the temple, in the morning and the evening, there was a burnt incense offering given to God. In the morning and the evening, there was also a sacrifice, the animal, on the brazen altar. So at the time of the sacrifice, in the morning evening, there was also the offering of incense to God. But not every priest could do this. It was a very, very great honor if your name was drawn because many priests would never have their name drawn. Remember how many priests there were? 18,000. And in order to spread it around, you could only, this could only happen once in your life. So this was Zachariah's greatest moment. Here's what he would have done that day. Picture this in your mind. Zechariah would gather the coals off of the altar of the burnt offering and place these coals in a golden bowl. He would carry that golden bowl with those hot coals inside the holy place. Now remember, he would, he's never been in the holy place before in his life. And he would proceed to the golden altar of incense and dump the coals and spread them around. And after that, he'd put incense on top of those burning coals. Just picture this in your mind. What would happen? Well, immediately a huge column of smoke would rise up, and it would carry both the smoke and the fragrance of that incense just wafting around everywhere in the temple. And that was all his duty was, and then he was to leave. And it wasn't a long process either. But it was customary that the priest doing this didn't stay very long. And there was a tremendous fear as the priest would get close to the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies that whether inadvertently or on purpose, they might do something to dishonor God and lose their life. And so to protect themselves, the priest would put bells on their skirts so people outside praying could hear him moving around. So they knew if they would know if God killed him in there if there was no more sound. He wasn't moving. You hear a thud, there's no more bells, you gotta pull them out. So the bells stopped ringing, that was it. And while the aromatic cloud created by the incense was ascending and it was really symbolic, symbolic of the prayers of the people who were outside doing what? Praying. So the people were actually doing what the incense symbolized. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and who go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying my wife's old. Right? We're both old. Advanced in years. Luke is a nice guy. Now just like that science of God was broken, think about this. 400 years of science, all of a sudden it's broken. And it's broken with incredibly good news, right? For Zechariah, his prayers have been heard and will be answered. You'll have a son, and he will be the forerunner to the Messiah. And I want to give you one quick note here. Don't give up praying. Now, the Greek, the way this is written in the, the language here, implies that this was a long-standing prayer to have a child. In other words, they prayed for years. And I don't know if they stopped praying. The text doesn't tell us that. What I do know, God heard their prayers. And he answered them in his timing. So don't give up praying. I can think of all those years of praying and waiting and God finally answered their prayers. Yet despite persevering in faithful prayer, we find this faithless response from Zechariah. I'm going to reword Zechariah's response this way. This is what kind of my version of this. How shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and am married to an old lady. That, in essence, is what he's saying. He was a skeptic, saying, I don't believe you. And it's easy to get to that point when you have a long-standing prayer request, and, and you, know, you feel like you're praying, and the prayer is just bouncing off the ceiling, and nothing's happening. Is God hearing? And, of course, what then happens? Either if you don't give up praying all in all, you just are skeptic that it will, or doubt that it will ever be answered. Now this is his response, by the way, because I'm not going to give Zechariah off the hook here because there's an angel there saying this to him. Okay? This is his response, though, to the miraculous spoken word of God. Unbelief. And don't you find it amazing that he'd been praying all this time for a child, and God sent an angel to announce he's going to have one, he doesn't believe it. Certainly others in the past have asked God for more explanation when he had spoken to them, right? Especially when he spoken to them things that were hard to understand. But scripture doesn't record as overtly unbelieving response as Zacharias or Zechariah. I don't believe. It is a very serious matter to not believe the word of God. There are consequences. 
Here is Zechariah's consequences for his unbelief. Verse 19. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, there are myriads of angels. 10,000 times 10,000. We don't know the exact number of angels, but we do know that they are too numerous to count. Now, only two angels are named in the Bible. I don't consider Lucifer or Satan now an angel anymore. So there's only two that are named. And of course, they are Michael, who was a fighting angel or a warrior angel, and Gabriel, who was a messenger angel. Now, two things stand out about this encounter. First, the scriptures reveal stories of angels visiting people. And the response is the person's overcome by their own what? Their sinfulness, right? They are full of fear. They lose their strength. They're unable to stand. They become lifeless in many ways in the presence of an angel. But this doesn't happen here. Zechariah was startled and full of fear, but he wasn't without strength. Second, it's interesting to note that Gabriel introduces himself. Why? Why does he introduce himself as Gabriel? I think it's because Zechariah was a man who knew the Old Testament. Gabriel appeared in which book of the Bible? Daniel. He should have recognized, he should recognize Gabriel by name, not by appearance. When he said it was Gabriel, his mind should have gone back to the book of Daniel. But in response to his unbelief, Gabriel says, in essence, who do you think you're talking to? I am not just some regular angel. I am Gabriel. I'm coming down from the very throne room of God to share this message with you. It's good news. It's a good message. Because you don't believe my words, you will not be able to speak until this has come to pass. It is good to know that our faithlessness does not rule over God's faithfulness. God is sovereign. He will accomplish his plan. And his plan does not rise or fall on the faith of men. Now our faithfulness determines whether we get to experience the blessings of watching his plan unfold before our very eyes. Of course, you can think of other examples in, in the New Testament or in the Gospels of when people won't believe the message of Jesus. God is there physically in himself, Jesus, speaking to people. They reject him. They don't believe him. There's great woes that have come upon those places and those people. People don't believe Jesus, and guess what? They don't get to see the miracles. He could do very few miracles, the scriptures say, because the people wouldn't believe. See, Zechariah's response reminds me of a story shared by Dr. Howard Hendricks. She, Erica, you were there with me. You probably don't remember this, but we were having a Colorado State University having a dinner with some staff members and Dr. Howard Hendricks, the former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he passed away a few years ago, was, was teaching during that time to some of us. And I recall this story he shared for some reason. 
He recalled the time when he was sitting in his favorite recliner in his house, and the phone rang. It was good news. A friend that he had been praying for for over 40 years finally came to faith in Christ. Dr. Henry's response, I don't believe it. I mean, that, it, it goes so much, it fits so well here because it's, it's a Zechariah response. He faithfully prayed for 40 years. Now, of course, he talked about just don't give up praying that God can answer your prayers, but that can very often be the response of a long-standing prayer request. I, you get it's answered, and you just are used to not getting answered, so you don't believe it. And this is a lesson. Don't do that. <laughs> Take it to Polar Express. Believe. So let's take a look at a better response to God's spoken words. Let's take a look at belief. Turn to Luke 1, starting in verse 26. It's the contrast you see that Luke is painting here between Zechariah, in this case, Mary. In contrast to Gabriel's first trip earlier in the chapter, when he went to bring God's message of a miracle birth to an old man, this time he brings... He comes to bring God's message of a miracle birth to a young girl. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Again, nothing stands out about Mary. Unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both blameless and righteous in the sight of God, there's nothing that follows the description of Mary other than a period. I mean, there's no exclamation point or anything. She's just Mary. She was a common 13 to 15-year-old teenage girl, probably going about her normal routine of the day, which would have taken up the day for her, which is what? Domestic responsibilities dominated by preparing food. Yeah, refrigeration. They would go to the market, buy the animal, chop it up, cut it up, prepare the meal. There's no microwave, anything like that. I mean, the meal was a process each day. And that's why they had you know, children and other people and families lived together to prepare the meal. Apparently, she is alone when Gabriel enters the house and says, in essence, hello. Hail or greeting simply means Hello. Now, she has a similar response to Gabriel as Zechariah does. She's filled with fear, but she is not lifeless. 
Perhaps the ordinary introduction was designed to prevent panic, but unlike Zechariah, it was not the presence of the angel that startled her, but his message. He's a favored one. And why would this perplex her, as we see in the text? Probably because she knew she was a sinner. I mean, if God were to say to you, oh, favored one, and you're in the presence of holiness, what would overcome you? Your sin, right? She's perplexed by this message. And if she was shocked at his initial statement, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, what in the world was her reaction when the angel said to her, you're going to conceive in your womb? Now, Mary was betrothed to be married. That was a legally binding agreement, and if it was violated or broken, it was considered a divorce. And furthermore, as you may recall, to be pregnant out of wedlock in violation of a betrothal covenant to commit what would constitute adultery was punishable by death through stoning. Deuteronomy 22. Now, all this is racing through her mind. She's favored, she's going to have a child. How does she respond to God's spoken word to her? Well, she asks a question that demonstrates belief. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Again, others in the past have asked God for more explanation when he had spoken to them things hard to understand, and God graciously responds. In essence, what Mary is saying is, okay, I believe you. How are we going to get this started? Do you see the difference between her response and Zechariah's response. And with that faith-filled response, Gabriel explains that she will be with child through the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that explanation, Mary then gives, in my opinion, one of the most impressive statements from any one human being in history. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, remember, all that is going through her mind in that culture at that time, so be it, in essence is what she says. She submits to the spoken words of God. She believes and she submits. Here's a faithful, submissive teenage girl who gave herself to whatever God wanted to do with her, no matter how far beyond imagination it might be. She weighed the risk and came to the conclusion She believed in God's promise, in God's power, and that she, as God's servant, could be used in such a way. Now, this is harder for us because we are, it's an older congregation, we're older church, we're older. As you older you get, it can be harder to believe. Don't be a Zechariah. Be a Mary. There's a reason why, by the way, if I had asked by raising of fans, what age did you come to Christ? Most of us made a decision for Jesus Christ at a younger age. Be like Mary in that regard. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, so far we've looked at two common people who had two angelic visits with two messages announcing two supernatural births births, and two responses to God's word. 
Now these two common people, Zechariah and Mary, one being an ordinary priest out of 18,000 and one being a typical teenage girl in the midst of the normal routines of life, both hearing the words of God. My point is, you don't have to be special to hear his voice. But what do you have to do to hear his voice? Believe. God often takes the common, I think this is Luke's point, he often takes the common to do the uncommon. Now while there are two different responses to the word of God, and we're going to close with this because I don't want you to miss this point. Unbelief or belief. In Luke's account, they both end in the same place. And that is with this, with praise. In Luke chapter 1, look at verse 68. Once the word spoken by Gabriel came to pass, Zechariah's mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak. And what was the very first thing he did? It's recorded for us. He praised God. It says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's one long sentence, by the way. But you can see there, he praises God. And that is the normal response when God speaks. Praise. When Mary visits her, her relative Elizabeth, I mean, because she hears this message and she goes to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth cries out, now watch this, and blessed is she who what? Verse 45, everyone go there, Luke 145. Why is she blessed? And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And what was Mary's response? Verse 46, praise. My soul magnifies the Lord my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estates of his servant. And you can see it in verse, all the way down to verse 45. Praise. That is the response to the word of God. And that's what we're really doing here, is that we are celebrating, we are worshiping, praising God for what he's done. He has broken the silence, he has spoken, and we respond and praise. Now we will do that at length Thursday night. A very, very, very brief message and a lot of singing with a candlelight service because that's the appropriate response. Praise. To praise him. So do you want to take a guess at what the application point is this week? Praise God. Praise God. So let's put that into practice. We will close the service with a song. So stand up. Wake up. Get up. Let's praise God. Let me pray for us. And after the song is over, you're dismissed.
go do any last minute shopping. And if you want my list of what I want, you can come to my office. I can let you know that and so on and so forth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to worship you with our voices and praise you for what you've done. And we remember, and we're very, very grateful that you came to us as we remember and celebrate the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us the people who believe. Purge out of us the doubt, the unbelief. May we submit to your spoken word and may it be to us according to your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.